Now, um, as Christian, if you're a Christian, you believe in grace, all right? You should believe in grace. It's the best bit. Um, we believe as Christians that um, God shows, he loves to show his mercy and forgiveness to sinners. But here's the other thing. Christians also believe in maintaining a just society. We think that for justice to prevail, it requires that people suffer the full consequences of their actions, whether they're sorry or not. This is how the justice system works. You rob a bank, you get caught, um, you go to the courtroom and um, there's, a, there's, there's a judge before you and there's the lawyers and they say, did you do it? And you, and you say, yeah, I did rob the bank. <laughs> I'm so sorry. But the judge will still say, well, it's good that you're remorseful, but you still have to go to jail. And everyone cheers at the end. Yeah, that's great. The sentence is passed. Now, Jonah believed in God's grace, and he also believed in the uh, importance of justice, the need for God's justice to prevail. He was part of a community like ours that was governed by the constant application of black and white laws, of obligation and responsibility, rewards and punishments that were given as a consequence. And God had sent Jonah to the Ninevites, the evil, terrible, basically terrorists, who had committed great atrocities towards their enemies. And this was a huge struggle for Jonah because he believed that God should destroy Nineveh. He would have been a good friend with Donald Trump, I think. You know, let's just nuke the guys. That's what Jonah's thinking. And yet he knew deep down, because he's a prophet, he knows God is gracious. And so there's a tension there inside of him. What's going to happen? I think I know what's going to happen. I don't like it. And you're going to find that in your life, these two, this tension clashes inside of you too. Because we need to be able to trust in a consistent God-given cosmic order. We need to trust in an ultimate structure of the moral universe. And yet, God sort of does what he wants to do. And his love is mysterious. And doesn't always work the way we expect it to. So let's see what God teaches Jonah about this. This is the hard lesson for Jonah. First of all, in the first five or so verses of this passage from chapter 4, we're just looking at a man getting really angry. Jonah had already preached his very short sermon to the, these um, corrupt Ninevites. 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown, was the sermon. And as Anthea taught us last week, Every Ninevite, from the king down to the cows, repented. They were sorry for their sin. They put on ashes and sackcloth with you know, the potato sacks and they walked around in repentance. Sorry for their sin. And God, in his love and compassion, in his tender mercy, he says, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction that he had threatened. The king of Nineveh had said, who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that he will not perish. And God did turn from his anger. And this is exactly what Jonah knew was going to happen. And he was annoyed. I know you, God. And I know you're going to do this and you have done it. Just like I said you would. And while God's turning from his anger, Jonah's turning towards his anger. 
God's grace shown towards the Ninevites made Jonah really angry. Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. Jonah would rather die than see God show his grace. In fact, dying was better than living if the enemy lived. Let me die now. Your grace is too much. I'm happy to have the grace you've shown to me, but not the one, the grace that you've shown them. And God looked at poor Jonah, who by now had worked up a sweat and was in tears. And he says to Jonah, have you got any right to be angry, Jonah? Actually, what we should be hearing in this question is a bit more on the lines of, is, is your anger doing you any good, doing anyone any good? Is there anything worthwhile coming out of it? Now, Jonah is acting like the ultimate self-righteous self -righteous religious person. That's what he's doing here. He's just like the older brother in Jesus' parable of the of the prodigal son, of the story of the prodigal son. Remember the story, there is an older and younger brother who live and work on the farm with their father. And the younger, more rebellious son brings shame upon his father by asking for his share in the inheritance, 50% share. Great shame on his father. He wants the money to go and live the life and party on, have good, having good times. And he was effectively saying to his father, I wish you were dead. But his father who had compassion for his younger son, granted his younger son the inheritance. Meanwhile, the older son, the more loyal, faithful son who worked hard on the farm, stayed to work with his father. And while the younger son's away, of course, he spent all his money on prostitutes and wild living. And then there was a famine and he found himself in this disastrous situation where he's got no money left and he's working in a pig pen which was shameful for a Jewish person. And he's sitting there in the mud and he comes to his senses and he realises, I've done the wrong thing. Maybe if I go back, Dad's going to welcome me home. So he goes back home. And his father sees him coming from a distance. And he comes running out of the house. And he opens his arms and he welcomes his son home and he puts his signet ring on his son's finger, which was a sign that you're welcome back in the family. He puts a cloak on him. And this was a great moment in their family's life. Reconciliation, healing. His younger son who was lost has come home. And so he was so happy that they killed the fattest cow and had a huge party and a barbecue. Now, the older brother comes and hears the partying going on the DJ and the music and the laughing and the champagne glasses clicking and he became haunted at that moment by the ghost of Jonah the older brother's like getting angry he's getting a sweat up how dare his father show forgiveness to that stupid younger brother of mine all these years I've been doing the right thing slaving away for you and you didn't even throw me a small party he said but my stupid younger brother who brought great shame on you and he wasted his inheritance on prostitutes, when he rolls in, all sorry for his sins, you throw him a party. The religious ghost of Jonah is in all of us. 
we all have tendencies towards religious self-righteousness. We all forget that our salvation is ultimately God's gift to us. And nothing that we have done can earn that. We all can get jealous of other people when we see them. After committing sin after sin after sin, suddenly have a new, have a new birth and a new life. Jonah was so angry, he went out to the edge of the city and sat down under a tree. And he waited and he watched. And this image of the Jonah sitting on the tree, it brings up, um, it, it's like a signpost for us to, to look at other imagery in the Bible. This tree is his little shelter, like the shelters built by the Israelites when they wandered through the desert for 40 years. And God told them to build this, these shelters as a reminder of his good and gracious provision during their years of wandering. Later, centuries later, under the prophet Zechariah, the Israelites started building um, these kind of shelters, celebrating the Feast of Booths. Um, the Feast of Booths was about, about celebrating God's ingathering of all the nations, not just the Israelites, but all the nations. So when we see Jonah there sitting under his shelter, for a Jewish person reading this, it'll evoke all these images. Oh, and the Bible does this. It often includes, includes imagery and phrases and references that, that maybe the characters in the story aren't totally aware of what's going on. But I guess Christians believe that God inspires the writers of the Bible, the books of the Bible, to insert these to help us to understand the Bible as a whole. You get this in modern movies. Um, if you go on YouTube and you start searching for Star Wars, there are literally hundreds of thousands of five-minute clips of the Star Wars fans pointing out little references in all the movies that point to all the other movies. And they're saying, well, maybe this means this and maybe this means that. This image of Jonah sitting under the shelter is a little bit like that. It evokes themes of God's provision in the past and also God's blessing in the future. Jonah is sitting there and he's waiting. He's actually waiting for God to do something nasty to the Ninevites that he's going to pour out his wrath like a bomb from heaven. But God has made his mind up. He will show mercy to the Ninevites because he's a God of provision and he's a God of blessing. They are sorry for the evil that they've done. And God then turns his attention to Jonah and gives him a lesson and uses these inanimate objects that are kind of all non-human objects that are around him. Um, and then the whole of the Jonah story is filled with objects being used to teach a lesson. We've had, um, um, we've had the boat and the ocean and the fish, the vomit, you know. And now we've got Jonah learning a lesson from a vine, a worm, and a scorching east wind. The vine, well, it says the Lord provides a leafy plant, maybe a vine, to shade Jonah. And it grew over Jonah to shade him from the sun. And Jonah loves his fine because it gives him comfort. But the next day, the Lord provides a worm to destroy the vine, and it withers. And then when the sun comes up, the Lord provides a scorching east wind, and the, the sun blazed on Jonah, and it was painful for him. And this woke Jonah up from his kind of depression, I guess. And Jonah spoke up again. He was so irritated and angry, he said he wanted to die. 
So what was God trying to teach Jonah? In the first week of um, Jonah chapter 1, I had a few of the people helping up upstairs come down and said, oh, we did the worm. What does the worm mean? Well, this is what the worm means. Um, Jonah had to learn about what it means to have concern for people, concern for others, in the way that God has concern. Pity or passion for people, deep in your heart. Look at verse 10 and 11. The Lord said, you've been concerned about this plant, though you didn't even make it grow. It sprang up overnight and it died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their left, right hand from their left, and also many animals? Jonah cared for the plant because it, it gave him something. It served his need for shade. He was angry when it withered because it inconvenienced him. God's point is, think about how much more concerned I am for these people in the city of Nineveh who basically don't have a clue about anything. They don't know their right hand from their left. They don't know about me. And now they're repenting. That's amazing, don't you think? This is a difficult lesson about what it is to weep for the lost people. And God is actually taking on the evil himself of Nineveh. He's he's bearing that weight. He's bearing the weight of their violence. The plan, uh, the pain of a thousand plundered cities, including Israel's own cities. The Ninevites have been evil to them too. God chooses to suffer in the place of the Ninevites. His tears flow instead of the Ninevites' tears. One of the lessons that God's trying to show Jonah is that For him to be a God of justice and a God of grace, it's a real struggle for God. It's not like God's a machine that sort of just does something unemotionally, like mechanically. It's a real struggle. Listen to the prophet Hosea, for example. You'll you'll hear God revealing how much he struggles with punishment and forgiveness. Hosea 11, um, verse 7 This is God speaking. My people are determined to turn from me, even though they call me God Most High. I will will by no means exalt them. How can I hand you over, Israel? My heart is changed within me. All my compassion is aroused. I will not carry out my fierce anger, nor will I devastate Ephraim again. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One among you. I will not not come against their cities. In fact, Jesus talks in a similar kind of way. Jesus struggles too. It's not easy for him. Listen to Matthew 23, 37 to 39. Jesus says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. And you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And notice that while Jesus despairs, he does end his cry with a hope in the knowledge that one day Jerusalem will say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. What is significant for Jonah, though, is how much um, God struggles Uh, Sorry, is how much he struggles, Jonah struggles, and how much we struggle when corrupt and evil people repent. 
When corrupt people repent, they are often not converted for very long. It's like a long life of evil and then conversion and then they're a Christian. God's mercy to them seems like seems a bit unfair, a bit of an indulgence. It's, the scales don't seem balanced. But God is working with Jonah to help him to understand the extent of his love. And here's some things we can learn. I think it's four things about God's justice and his mercy. First, God actually does judge the wicked. Nineveh's repentance actually only lasts for a bit. Lasts for about 100 years. And we know that about a century later, it's even recorded in the Bible, they eventually go back to their old ways and then they're wiped out. They're gone. Uh, By the time the actual book of Jonah came out, which we think is about the 5th century BC, Nineveh Nineveh was already gone. (laughs) So... God, it's not like God doesn't care about evil. He does judge the wicked. Secondly, God promotes a more compassionate justice than we ever would. The fact that God loves a wayward and ignorant people does not undermine the fabric, the just fabric of the universe. It doesn't undermine God's internal justice. It doesn't affect his integrity but it shows us something profound about God's ways in the world. God does not stop judging the wicked or blessing the obedient for that matter. He simply demonstrates that the blessing for the obedient is actually founded on his undying love, which is for everyone. Those who are obedient to God already receive God's grace. And here, that same grace is demonstrated in a new and outrageous way towards a people who are the completely ignorant and violent rebels of Nineveh. Thirdly, when God gives his radical grace to the rebellious, he's showing that he is free to give out his blessing as he pleases. This radical grace is the hope of all people in the world that turn in arrogance from the creator. I think about Clifton Hill and North Fitzroy, um, the highest concentrated area in the whole of Australia for people who tick no religion on the census. Um, People who say, I have no time for God at all. And I sometimes think, how are we ever going to make any progress in this part of Melbourne as a church reaching these people? But when I read a, a story like Jonah, I think, well, if it can work for the Ninevites, then it surely can work for North Detroit and Clifton Hill and the surrounding suburbs. Most people don't even know who the God of the Old and the New Testament is around here. And yet God could freely and does freely throughout history pour out his radical grace on people. And I I want to challenge you. In your prayer life, do you pray for that? Do you expect that? Do you want that? I hope you do because that's what we're here for. Fourth, the story of Jonah shows us that God is open to all who repent even to people who have no clue. No clue about God. No clue about morality. Often when you read the Bible, you think, am I, you, you identify with, often with the hero of the story. That's natural, the main character. And so we think, we put ourselves in Jonah's shoes. Are we like Jonah? Well, in a way we are. We're a bit like Jonah. But perhaps we're also a lot like the Ninevites who basically have no idea. 
On the Jewish afternoon service on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, they read the book of Jonah. Then in response to God's question, should I not pity Nineveh? They read out this bit from Micah, chapter 7, verse 18 to 20. Who is a God like you who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. You will be faithful to Jacob and show love to Abraham as you pledged on oath to our ancestors in days long ago. The, the congregation at Yom Kippur, the Jews, when they were celebrating this day, they were saying, yeah, we're a bit like Jonah and we're a bit like the Ninevites too. We're in the same boat, pardon the pun. They all have the same basic relationship to Yahweh. All of them have to accept God's compassion and forgiveness. All of them must recognise they desperately need God's mercy and all of them have to recognise they basically have no clue. We're not experts at God. All of them need to turn, all of us need to turn to praise God for the lifting of the burden of our guilt from our shoulders. And so to finish, it's for this reason that Jesus is a very happy opposite to Jonah. He's a happy reverse of Jonah. Because, because Jesus is also a prophet, the ultimate prophet, the prophet's prophet, who came to preach repentance and obedience to God to basically his enemies, to people who, who didn't want to have a bar of him. But instead of sulking about the radical grace that God wanted to show to the world like Jonah did, Jesus embodied that radical grace. Instead of being self-righteous and judgmental towards the people who God said can't tell their right hand from their left, Jesus hung on the cross and looked down and prayed, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Instead of going to the edge of the city to sit down and wait in hope for God to pour out his wrath on a people, like Jonah did, Jesus, beaten and spat on, carried his cross to the outside of the city and in breathtaking contrast, took that wrath on himself in his death. And in that cross, we see perfectly God's justice and his mercy coming together. We see God struggling like he has never struggled before as he satisfies his justice and lavishes out his grace. And this is a profound mystery. God's grace, it is so crazy, so unpredictable, so untamed, so lavish, so glorious, so shocking, that he would even send his son to die so that we can live. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you so much for Jonah and thank you that we can learn from his anger, for his frustration from him, from him being a religious crazy, um, self-righteous. And thank you that you show your love to people who have no idea. Thank you that your grace is unpredictable and lavish and 
over the top and that you are complex. Thank you that you struggle for us, that you are not a machine, but that you are the Lord of the universe. Amen.